Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, with the latest installment of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, where our editors and reporters discuss the most compelling stories and sources they're covering. Today, my guest is James Kleiman, the managing editor of our newsroom, to talk about the biggest stories we've covered this week across all of our brands. Before we dive in, here's a word from our sponsor. At PennyMac TPO, you'll get live access to underwriting managers, real bend-over-backwards people, the kind who care about your success as much as their own. As a PennyMac TPO partner, their credit solutions team is standing by to help you quickly solve any underwriting issues throughout the loan process. PennyMac believes the road to greatness is paved with dedicated support. For more information or to price a loan, go to tpo.pennymac.com. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS ID number 35953. Loans not available in New York. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Sarah. Good to be with you. Always good to have you on. Um, Wow, lots of big news this week, especially about uh, profit margins as we look at what happened in the fourth quarter and all of last year. So one of the stories on our site that's getting a lot of traffic is the fact that profit margins are plunging for non-banks. So I would love to uh, have you give us a little bit of an overview of what we're finding there. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a pretty, pretty big dip. So the net gains in the fourth quarter for non-banks and uh, the MBA looks at about, I think it's about 360 non-bank lenders when they do this analysis. Uh, they, they found that the net gains in the fourth quarter declined to about $1,099 per loan originated. And if you look back to even the third quarter of 2021, the number was about $2,600 per loan originated. And, and so, I mean, that's that's a massive, massive, massive drop. And, you know, a lot of lenders actually fared better than uh, many observers thought they would in the fourth quarter. You know, the the rates were still, they they were certainly rising, but they were nowhere, you know, where they are like today. And uh, so, you know, many, many of the lenders still were were receiving that boost from refis and a lot of cash out refis. And and, um, it's, it's a dramatically different market where we are today in, uh, in late March. So when the numbers do eventually come out for the first quarter and the second quarter, I, I think you're going to find that a lot of those lenders are going to see even lower profit margins on, on each loan originated. And, um, you know, to boot, the, the average production volume was also down, not, not dramatically so, but um, the average production volume per non-bank lender According to the MBA in the fourth quarter was about $1.13 billion per company, and it was a little bit lower than uh, the prior quarter, and the volume count dropped by about 100 loans, a little over 100 loans uh, per company during the quarter. So it's, uh, it's, it's all not a great sign for the non-banks, or, you know, I, I imagine it's, it would be similar trends for the banks as well, the depositories. Uh, but this is basically a three-year low 
after a few really great years of profitability. And as ever, the headwinds are lower revenues and higher production costs. So, you know, the the reason that the struggles are so pronounced now is because the industry has spent so much of the last few years building up capacity to to capitalize on that historic refi boom. And now the volumes aren't there. The refi market doesn't really exist. Um, Certainly not in rate term, maybe a little bit in cash out. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's a really tough market, and and I, I think you're going to see a lot of companies that are are looking very closely at uh, how to save and and cut costs, and in almost every case, that's going to mean personnel changes, and and not in a good way. No, not in a good way. You know, it reminds me back in 2018, we wrote a series of stories on the cost to originate a mortgage is you know ridiculous, and then it's like. It just got more ridiculous or whatever, you know, that are, are escalating headlines because uh, the cost to originate just kept going up and up. And so, you know, now when you look at, at that, um, the difference there in the cost to originate and then and then what they're getting out of it, whew, it's rough. And, and to your point, I, I feel like we're in some ways back to that 2018 environment since that's the last time we really saw rates rising like uh, we anticipate now and, and have seen. Um, so really interesting to to keep an eye on that. Um, what are you know one of the things that we see some of those um, lenders doing is expanding their product mix, which totally makes sense, especially into the into the non QM space. So tell us what we're seeing there. Yeah, so uh, especially in the wholesale channel, we're seeing quite a bit of movement. Uh, a lot of a lot of big lenders are are stepping up and saying, "Hey, brokers, we we know that you have a lot of." potential clients who are maybe investors or, or maybe it's a, you know, someone who isn't a W2 borrower or someone who owns their own small business and they have, you know, a really stable operation or, or maybe it's seasonal, but they make a lot of money during certain seasons. And we have previously kind of ignored a lot of those potential borrowers and, and they often go, you know, in, into the non-QM world because they, they need a bank statement loan or or what have you, and uh, now UWM is is saying that they're going to be uh, approaching those borrowers. They have new products. They have two new products out for them. HomePoint uh, told my colleague Flavia Ferlan Nunez yesterday that they are also looking to find uh, a little bit more traction uh, with those types of borrowers, and and so I think you're going to continue to see that across the board. Uh, if you are a non-bank lender who is Really, only in the Fannie Freddie government loan business, um, you're you're probably going to struggle in 2022. And uh, as long as you have the infrastructure, the underwriting, the processors who are comfortable with that kind of product mix, and you're you're able to uh, to kind of handle the secondary uh, side of it, it's it's a pretty smart play. And um, you know we're we're going to see. Probably a lot of consolidation in 2022 and 2023, and um, and and being able to get an edge, even if it's just a few, you know, a few. Uh, let's say it's a, a 30 basis point margin gain, right? Like that's that's going to be enough for some of these companies to stay in the black, and um, and and I think you're going to continue to see this throughout the year. So when HomePoint is going to do it, we don't quite know. UWM is already unveiled. Uh, both a product for bank statement borrowers, I believe it's up to a few million and ninety uh, percent LTV, and then they're also doing uh, an investor uh, loan as well. Where uh, of course it's it's not so much about the income 
of the investor. That doesn't make sense, right, for this kind of product. But it's it's really about uh, the cash flow for the the rental property that they are looking to do. And and in this case, they'll they'll be permitting you know short term rental operators as well. It's, so yeah, it's smart from several angles, you know, not only um, to, for borrowers, but the kind of borrowers that you're looking to attract. So self-employed borrowers typically have, um, you know, they might have a lot of cash in the bank, they might have um, high income, but just, it's just, I mean, they're, they're an, if, if they have a high credit score, and they've got a lot of um, cash, you know, they're, they're actually a great borrower, they just don't fit in to the, you know, agency conforming you know, world, but, but that's the kind of person you want right now. Also investors, right? Who has money to spend and who can really compete in this market? It's, it's the investors. And so it it makes sense to me that this is a smart play to, to really go after not just, you know, offering a tip, uh, a kind of product, but who, who that product is going to attract to your, to your shop. Yeah. I think, you know, on the first Part of it, the the bank statement borrowers huge market, right? How many how many successful entrepreneurs or small business people are there in America? It is, you know, still very much the lifeblood of of Main Street USA, and and you can find them in any town, right? And and um and those are often borrowers that are kind of left left out in the cold when when it comes to trying to get a standard or conventional or you know even if you look at it like they're let's say it's a two income household but one of those incomes is you know they have their own business or or maybe they work in the gig economy um, they are not going to be getting that Fannie or Freddie back loan and so I think there's a much bigger market for those borrowers for these non-bank lenders and, and the simple reason is is if you're an investor right now you're probably a cash buyer and I think it will be you'll you'll have to make those programs really attractive uh, if you're a UWM or a Home Point or whomever um, to to make that more compelling. Um, so I, I don't think that that's going to be a huge product for them, um, but it's it's something a lot of the analysts say they need they they need to have uh, a well defined product mix and just having your standard Fannie Freddie that is kind of your go to you know with the high credit scores and you know, borrowers that are willing and able to to meet any appraisal gap if there is one, you know, that's that's no longer going to work for, um, you know, if you want to keep volumes close to where they were in 2021. It's a great point. And, you know, I, I talked to, um, so our lead analyst, Logan Motoshami, wrote a story this week about the savagely unhealthy housing market. And one of his points in there is like, you know, who is it that's able to buy homes right now? And, you know, the latest NAR research shows that you have all cash buyers, you know, coming in at, at 25% of all transactions, which makes sense if you think about the incredibly competitive and ridiculous <laughs> bidding situation that's out there. Who is it that can compete with that? You know, it's not first time home buyers mostly. It's, um, yep. it's people who can. And so, you know, I asked him about that. I was like, boy, that seems really high. And he said, actually, it's, it's not higher than the levels, you know, back in 2016 or, or even before, you know, you, you get some weird data going if you go back too far, because there was just a ton of distressed properties. And so you had investors come in with all cash and, and, you know, but they were, they, they cost a lot less and there, it was just a different market. So to me, 25% all cash in this market is significant. Um, just, just when you think about there's so many, you know, so many fewer distressed properties. So that all cash, 
those all cash transactions are ones that other people are missing out on in a way that in the past, I feel like investors maybe were doing, um, you know, more fix and flip, more distressed. So I think that that's also an important part of this. Yeah. And I think it's worth remembering that there's often a lot of uh, chatter or (laughs) maybe uh, upset caused by this idea that Wall Street is walking into every town in America and just scooping up all the housing and that there are these big investment banks or these faceless entities that are, you know, putting it in a, a random LLC and and renting it out. And, and that does happen. I, I don't mean to say that it doesn't occur. It absolutely does occur. But the average quote unquote investor in America is still a small time local person who, you know, uses it maybe as a vacation home or as a, as a rental property or maybe, you know, they they have uh, short-term rental uh, visions for that property, but they're not, they're not, you know, Jonathan Gray of Blackstone buying every home out there. And so it's, it's just important to note that there is a huge difference in the way one of those, you know, major Wall Street investment banks would operate a property and, and the decisions they make as to its usage versus that of the, the everyday local investor. Um, Yeah, I I really think that's a great point. We shouldn't demonize investors. They are, uh, you know, in some ways, the lifeblood of our housing market as much as, you know, uh, owner occupants are going to be. So I do think that that's easy to do. I think from a a mortgage lender perspective, you know, you don't, I don't know that you really care who it is that's buying it. Um, In this market, those are the people who can afford it and have the cash to beat out other offers. So um, you know, having a product mix and having, you know, being being positioned to really offer those people what they need is is smart business. Yeah, but it, it means it's really, really difficult if you're a first time home buyer. You know, I, I think back to when my wife and I bought our first home just a year ago, less than a year ago, you know, we're, we're talking summer, fall of 2021. And, and we managed to beat out a few other offers uh, one person who was offering all cash, and, and that was because we were well qualified and and we, we were able to make the numbers work with the conventional mortgage. But today, I don't know that we would be uh, able to do it. You know, inflation is eating away at a lot of people's ability to save, and their down payments as a first time home buyer are probably going to be lower because they haven't had the opportunity to build equity, right? And unless they work in, in finance or have a real nice white collar job in tech or whatever, it's it's really, really difficult to, to have that kind of cash that you will need to really be competitive in this marketplace. And so, yeah, if you're the seller, you're you're looking at, let's say, three different options, one of which is a first-time home buyer who maybe checks a lot of the boxes, but doesn't have 50 grand to cover an appraisal cap, right? Or uh, you know, isn't willing to to forego all inspections or or anything like that. Uh, and then you look at an investor who's offering all cash, and then maybe someone else who's you know downsizing or upsizing and selling their home. You're probably never going to choose the first time home buyer, you know. And so I don't know what they're able to do in this market outside of sit it out. And if they do that, okay, fine. Maybe maybe you wait. You, you try to build up a little bit more in your savings, but your rents are also going up. And so it's it's just so, so difficult right now. And, and the reality is we're just not building enough housing in this country. And there's little reason to think that we'll ever be at the place, maybe not ever, I shouldn't say that, but anytime in the near future that we're going to be able to be producing, you know, 2 million homes a year, which is probably what we need to, to start really eating away at this inventory problem. 
Yeah, to your point, um, we are seeing the we have the highest number of first time home buyers right now because of the millennials coming into that peak home buying age. So, of course, some of them have already bought homes, but you're talking about the the number of people that the greatest number of people in one age group is is the age of thirty right now in our country, which is peak home buying age. And yet, you know, the irony is, and the and the sad thing is, it's just such a competitive market. So, it is it is like you know the collision of of really intractable forces to have this incredible demand, which is one of the reasons we have this, you know, the market that we have is because of these, these, uh, first time home buyers coming into it. But wow, what, what a crazy market for them. You know, I talked to, um, Logan about his, his latest story. And we, we talked about the fact that, you know, we have these, um, that what the home builders look at as a good market. And right now I think we have 6.3 months of inventory, or 6.3 months of supply, mm. but that's really a uh, a misleading figure because that's all of the things that have been already started. But I mean, that doesn't mean that's available inventory, that's supply. Some of that supply- Right, that's not completions. Right. Well, and some of that supply has already been bought. So it's not like, oh, there's 6.3 months of inventory out there to, to choose from. In fact, some of it's uh, sitting out there because it's been so hard to complete the jobs that that- the, there's more, you know, because I, I told him, I was like, wow, 6.3 months, that seems like a lot. He's like, yeah, but it doesn't really count for anything because it, it's it's just those houses that are taking forever to, to be built because of, you know, different supply constraints. So that it actually is making it look weird, right? It's like, well, why why is this a problem? But the truth is that we all know at, at a, not just an anecdotal level, but from a statistical level, there is there are not enough homes out there to buy. Yeah. And it's especially pronounced in certain areas. I'm, I'm in the Northeast. And this is really not an area for home builders. And, and that's largely because it was the first area of the country that was established, right? And so property has already been divvied up. And, and you know, there's just not a lot of land or, or interest in or, or ability to to build. And, and so a lot of people, you know, have to fight for a very limited pool of homes that are almost all existing home sales in the Northeast. And so it just means that prices are are going to keep going up and up and up. If you go somewhere like, say, my parents who live in in North Carolina, a lot of exurbs and a lot of new construction there, and so you have a fighting chance. But it's um, you know, it's it's still not enough to account for all the people who are moving into those areas from California and Texas and New York and and everywhere else. So it's um, it's it's a really challenging dynamic, and uh, I'm I'm hopeful that that we'll see some some actual federal level. Changes occur with regard to zoning and building codes, and that's really where a lot of a lot of the cost problems and a lot of the delays come into effect. It's it's that and nimbyism, which is a, a scourge in a lot of areas, right? So it's going to be tough for the next few years, at least. And and if you're a younger millennial, I don't know what hope you have, unless again you work at a great job and you have tech money or finance or you're really climbing the ladder, but. You know, you're you're now looking at the lowest level of inventory in modern U.S. history. You're probably going to be looking at interest rates in what the five percentage range, maybe higher, right? And then you add to the fact that there are a lot of other demographics that have cash or a huge amount of equity that they can tap, and it's also the most competitive market. So I I don't know. I, I guess they're just going to have to rent and uh, hope for the best. 
you know, one of, one of the sentiments I've seen online a lot is like, oh, they just need to, you know, millennials are, or these first-time homebuyers are so picky. They just need to move out of the cities into these rural areas. Well, okay, that assumes that you can get a job or, or your job is transferable. But I, I can tell you as someone who's right now looking at a at a much smaller metro area to move to, we're, um, we're looking uh, in a Wichita, Kansas, the amount of homes for sale in those areas is so much less. So yes, you have you know, they might be more affordable, but it's no less competitive because you're just dealing with a much smaller market to, to choose from. And and we've seen that in the reporting that Brooklyn Han has done on different markets throughout the country that are smaller, that aren't things that you think of as super hot markets, but they're competitive because there's just not enough housing, even in those smaller towns. It's, and there's no incentive to build in a smaller town, right? I mean, like where I live in Texas, I live in an, a suburb that's, you know, in, in what used to be a, a cow pasture, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's what I'm surrounded by. You can just keep going out, you know, and why wouldn't they? You have all these people moving to Texas and that, that migration is going to continue. In a smaller metro area, the home builders are really, you know, having to, to make the calculus of like, well, how long is this influx going to last? And every home that they build, once it's bought, becomes, you know, competition for their future. So it's, it's a, this is not something that has a really easy solution. Yeah, and and I think there are a lot of other people who would who would look at Wichita, Kansas, and say, okay, this makes sense now given my current condition. But what happens if if this job doesn't work out? You know, do I have the same options that I had living in the city? And so, you know, the, the other factor, of course, is that a lot of people the reason they move is because they want to be close to friends and family. And so, you may not have that dynamic in a lot of markets. So it's it's a tough decision. And and you know, the reality is a lot of boomers are not leaving their homes. You know, they, they, they had the equity to buy where they wanted to buy. They've either capitalized on, on, you know, accelerating home prices and they're aging in place. They're not leaving and we're not building enough homes quickly enough. So it's, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult for this generation for sure. We just, um, this week we had a, a webinar on how to get into, you know, for, for lenders who do forward, to look at their options in reverse because it is a giant market. We had such an amazing turnout for that webinar. We had so much interest from the industry. It tells me that people are finally maybe um, getting over the old stereotypes of reverse, which, you know, the, the laws were all changed, I believe it was 2018. So, so many of the things that people think about uh, in reverse, they're just, they're just not applicable anymore. Meanwhile, you have people who have incredible equity in their homes who want to stay there. So I do think that reverse is one of the plays that we see as a, as a media company, um, that we see the potential and we're seeing our audience really respond to that as well. So it'll be interesting to, to look forward and go, you know, look back at this time and say, oh, this was kind of maybe the tipping point. Maybe we're not there yet, but it does seem like, you know, it's coming. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is because if if you think about the safety net, uh, there's not a great one if if you are retirement age or getting older. And so, if you're on a fixed income and you don't have a huge amount of cash that you're able to 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 access, what are your options? And in, in a lot of cases, you probably have to tap equity from your home, and and that's also an age in which you know your your medical expenses may be higher, and of course. I'm not going to get into the whole thing about <laughs> single payer or healthcare system or anything like that, but you know it's it's not exactly um, a predictable uh, you know way to to manage your finances as you're you're getting older and and then you know let's say you have a 
a three-story home in wherever USA and you get older, you have an accident or just your mobility is not as great. You need to make major renovations. And well, where do you get the cash to pay for that? If you don't, you know, if you're on a fixed income and, and it's been a few years, you probably have to tap the equity. And so these are also the people that have the money, right? And so I I chatted with an LO the other day. Uh, She's based out of San Antonio, Texas. And she said she hasn't done a first time home buyer uh, purchase loan in, in two years. And, uh, and I said, why? Like, well, you know, there are so many, right? We, we know that demographically there are a lot of first time home buyers who are, um, still buying houses. And she said she saw the market coming and she wanted to only work with those she knew had the money on hand and ready to go that, you know, if they wanted to get something, they wouldn't be beat. Right. And so, um, so she's been doing a lot of reverse mortgages and the baby boomers are relocating and they're upsizing in some places and, you know, you're starting to see trends in, in which Californians are moving to Idaho and Wyoming and Arizona and people in Arizona are moving to Texas and wherever. And uh, there are good products for that. You can get a Heckam for purchase loan. You can get a nice lot. You can get you can get something you really want to get. And, uh, you know, a lot of those programs like Jumbos go up to $4 million in that. And so... You can really do well, but there's definitely not a lot of. Um, we certainly don't see a huge amount of origination volume with with you know heck and purchase or, or jumbos either. So it's uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be something, especially as as people age and and you know they just have more and more equity in these homes and and don't have a ton of options to to maneuver financially as they get older. You know, so we're covering it on on that end, looking at what the. Um looking at what the industry is doing to, to really shift towards the buyers who have the money, which is boomers or, or um, people who have a lot of equity in their home for, for reverse or these new mortgage products for non-QM. On the other hand, we have Matt Blake looking into some of the alternative um, home building models that maybe could open up things for people on the, on the front end um, of their home buying journey because they, you know, they might be more open to it. And they're, they might be more affordable. So I know he's working on several stories I'm looking forward to. Maybe you can tell us a, a little bit about those. Yeah. So so Matt has been looking into uh, – the, the first one, as you mentioned, is is about new ways of building homes. And so we know that there are 3D printing capabilities. We know that there are new materials that are promising. Uh, of course, people have talked about modular housing and, and all kinds of stuff in the past. Matt is taking a look right now at, you know, what is the likelihood of widespread adoption? We know it can be done in a few areas, but there are a lot of flaws, or maybe not flaws, but but maybe technologically they haven't been as developed as, as would be necessary to really truly make a massive dent in the cost structure of building a new home. So a lot of these 3D printing companies, you know, they can they can make the walls, which would normally be, you know, a process that's been done the same way for what, 100 or so plus years. Um, and so they can do that very quickly in just a few days, but they can't build roofs. They can't do, you know, um, a, a lot of smaller but very critical functions like can't build out like plumbing, uh, can't build out a lot of other, you know, uh, electrical um, components or anything like that. So although there is definitely, um, you know, a momentum for 3DB home building and it can be done in some areas, whether it can be done at scale, whether we're far enough along to build, you know, hundreds of homes in just a few months is, I think, a little bit too soon to say. And the bigger problem really continues to be zoning uh, and uh, and just 
building codes and and other, you know, I would say they're administrative issues that prevent the construction of homes. Uh, so Matt is looking into, to, you know, where those issues are most pronounced and, and what at least seems like something that that can be done to to mitigate some of those problems or, or to, you know, enable us uh, as a country to build more housing with uh, less bureaucracy. So those are the stories that he's working on. Hopefully we'll have uh, one or two of those next week. And uh, yeah, definitely check back for more. We're going to continue to be doing a lot of reporting on the inventory shortage and which loan products, uh, you know, homeowners or would-be homeowners are are using and, and which are successful and, and, and depending on the market condition, uh, which ones are a really tough sell right now. So, so lots to come. So I would encourage everyone to check back and check often. So appreciate that, James. And, and thanks for coming on. I know you're super busy with all that's going on, but love to share what's going on with our audience so that they know what's coming. Um, and I really appreciate your insights. So thank you for being on Housing Wire Daily. Thanks very much, Sarah. According to a recent article on the Great Resignation by MIT Sloan Management Review, more than 40% of all employees were thinking about leaving their jobs at the beginning of 2021. And that figure only grew as the year went on. So how are leaders finding ways to retain valued employees? Or maybe you're even asking these questions as a leader yourself. Step one to addressing this, empowering team members to take ownership of their professional growth. This is why we've invited leadership coach and author Renee Rodriguez to join us for this HW Plus virtual masterclass. Think of this class as a one-stop shop on what you need to know to take your leadership to the next level. Go to housingwire.com to learn more and register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.